This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. there morris speaking you're listening to episode 147 of the love that album podcast but more importantly than the fact that this is episode 147 is the fact that it is the 10th anniversary of the show back on july 14th 2011 i released to the world the first ever episode of the show let's have a listen to how i opened it all those years ago listeners out there welcome to the very first podcast of mine called I'm in love with that song Um, or you could go by the blog that I have written called love that album but either way you've found your way to the podcast by the time this gets on iTunes I'll have decided on the title Um, my name is Morris Bishtinsky and uh, thanks for uh, taking the chance to tune in basically where I want to take these podcasts is in a similar direction to uh, how I've been going with the blog if you've uh, had a chance to read that if not basically it's an opportunity for me to just um Uh, give a bit of a spin about albums that have meant a lot to me over my lifetime or if I particularly feel like it on a particular song that's meant a lot to me in my lifetime. Um, What gives me the right to do this? No more other than the fact that I love music and I've got a computer and someone out there has uh, decided that they're willing to listen. So that gives me the right. All right, not terribly impressive. And you could argue quite reasonably that maybe none of the shows since then have been opened up or run through that impressively. That's fine. I respect that. I was at this point going to talk a little bit about the history of the last 10 years of the show, but I sort of feel it's maybe a little bit too self-indulgent. So I'm not going to go there. If you want to help celebrate, blah, 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 please recommend the show to one other person. I really do sincerely want to thank anyone who's ever listened or podcasted on this show with me, or recommended music in the Facebook group. Thank you all so much. Podcasting is something that I've really loved doing, and, well, those of you who've listened to the show can hopefully tell. So let's talk about what's going to happen to celebrate this 10-year anniversary. I'm actually going to be spreading this out over two episodes because the content for one episode would make it like a three and a half hour or four hour podcast. And I know that some of you listeners out there don't know where the pause button is on your podcast application. So I'll make it easy for you and spread this out over two shows. What I did is I went and asked seven people who I've done the show with in the past, seven people who mean a lot to me. I asked them each 
each to bring to the discussion for this show as many albums as they could think. Well, not as many albums as they could think of. I asked for like, you know, one or two. Some of them brought more. Some of them brought two and said, I want you to bring a couple of albums to the show that were recorded or released in the last 10 years. So over the lifespan of the podcast and talk a little bit about them and why you want to recommend them. So it's, you know, not too drastically different to how the show normally goes, except that it's limited to the 10 years that the podcast has been running. And because we have so many people to fit in, well, we're not going to be talking for an hour and a half to two hours with any one person about one particular album. So each segment will be going for roughly 20 to 30 minutes. I have one presenter who goes for considerably longer, but I loved the conversation. So it's not edited down to 30 minutes anyway, but more of that later. So as I said, I've spread this out over two episodes. I'll talk now about the people who are going to be in this episode. When we get to part two of this 10th anniversary extravaganza, then I'll tell you more about those people. So this time around, we're starting off the show with a conversation that I had with music author, columnist, radio broadcaster, Mr. Jeff Jenkins. He loves his Bruce Springsteen, but he is widely known in the music community as a real champion of local musicians, local singer-songwriters. I mentioned that he loves his Bruce, and that's particularly relevant to Love That Album because he joined me for the very first episode of Love That Album to talk about what was the better album between Darkness on the Edge of Town and The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. This was really before I had an idea what format I wanted the show to be about. It was about three months from that episode to the second episode being recorded, which turned out to be a bit of a disaster, but that's a story for another time. Or you can go back and listen to that episode and work out why it was a bit of a disaster. Thanks to Jeff, he's going to be the first presenter on this 10th anniversary edition. The second person is the author of the Encyclopedia of Australian Rock and Pop. He also writes liner notes for the Aztec record label and their reissues, as well as the Raven Records reissues. He wrote the Encyclopedia of Australian Music. He is a walking encyclopedia. I'm talking about Mr. Ian McFarlane. He's been on a few episodes before and is just an absolute treat to have him come back to the program. As I said, he knows so much and is a great conversationalist and I always learn so much when I speak to him and certainly when I pick up the encyclopedia and just flip through it for a bit of a read. The third presenter for this episode is Mr. Eric Peterson. Now, he has a strong association with the history of this show because for a good portion of its run, I look, I haven't sort of done the calculation. It must be about seven or eight years worth of the show. He presented a segment called An Album I Love and he also did a side show called Love That Album, the compilation edition. And when I moved to doing only one show a month of Love That Album because I also needed the time to do the See Here podcast, at least that was one way of getting two shows of Love That Album out per month. And he always brought some really interesting stuff to the table. Eric also ran his own record label I think back in the early 90s, specializing in punk music called Reanimator Records. He hasn't been on the show as a regular guest in a while, but I knew that he was certainly someone who was a strong part of the history of the show and definitely wanted to have him back. And he said he's definitely up for coming back for the occasional discussion like any other guest. So hopefully we'll have him back in the not too distant future. We'll find an album or two that we can shoot the shit about in the main program. And the final presenter for this episode 
episode is going to be another music and film writer, the wonderful Ms. Heather Drain. She's a music and film writer at Diabolique magazine. She's an author. She presents DVD commentaries. Her knowledge of film is astounding. She works as a regular podcaster on a number of shows, but particularly where I first heard her and have had the honor to have joined her on is Mike White's projection booth. She's just one of those people who every time I hear her speak, I smile. She's just one of the nicest, happiest people that you could ever hope to meet. And I'm honored that she is a part of this show. She's done a few episodes in the past with me. And she's also a fellow Tubes fan. So that endears her to me, probably above everything. Well, maybe nearly above everything. So anyway, those are the four presenters who you'll hear having a chat with me on this episode of Love That Album. Part two should be out in another week or two. And I'll have another three presenters. I'll probably mention those at the end of this episode without wanting to sound like I've won an Academy Award or anything like that and and making a needlessly long speech. I do want to thank another two people and an organization. My huge thanks go to my son, Max. He's appeared on a few episodes of the show and his knowledge of music absolutely astounds me. And he's put me onto a lot of stuff that I had never otherwise known about. All really wonderful and interesting stuff. We don't always agree about music, but if he recommends something, I always pay attention. Particularly why I want to thank him is maybe a year and a half ago or something like that. I asked him to write a theme for the podcast. Uh, For many years, I've been using a segment from the replacement song, Alex Chilton, the phrase, I'm in love with that song. I guess it really summed up how I felt about music and really wanted to call the show, I'm in love with that song. But well, there's a wonderful fellow in the Pantheon Podcast Network who already has taken that show name. So it has still gone to good use. So love that album it was. But anyway, yeah, Max has written a great new theme for the show to replace that Alex Chilton thing that I'd been using for you know the better part of eight years, I suppose. So yeah, my thanks to him for his generosity of spirit and his creativity. He also went and wrote the theme that we use for the See Here podcast, but I'll talk about that when we get to the 10th anniversary of that show in a couple of years. I want to thank the people at the Pantheon Podcast Network for taking this show on at this stage. They've got over 70 podcasts on their network. There's going to be something for you to pay attention to. You may not necessarily be interested in every topic that they present, but every podcaster there goes and puts in a lot of time and effort to make wonderful sounding shows for your ear holes. And particularly, I want to thank Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli over at Pantheon for allowing this show and see here to play in the same sandbox. It's the same expression I use all the time, but I really am grateful for them taking a chance on this show and putting it amongst such other stellar listening for your ear holes. The final person I want to give some thanks to is my beautiful wife, Joanne. I've spent countless hours in this little side room, editing, recording, writing notes, writing thoughts for the next episode of the podcast. And she's been very, very patient. And there are times where she said, look, get out of there. Let's go and play a game of Scrabble or let's go out and see a movie or go see a band. You know, we'll do all that sort of thing. But I spent an awful lot of time in here planning for the podcast. So my huge gratitude to Joe for her patience. So what we'll do at this stage is Joe will give you the contact details. So in case you want to write a note of happy 10th anniversary, thank you very much. I'd be always appreciative of that. How to write to us by email, how to join the Facebook group. And as I said earlier on, if you want to help celebrate, and I'd be truly grateful for it, just tell one other person that this show exists and that you think it's not a waste of their time to listen to it. 
All right, here's Joe, and then after that, we'll be back with Jeff Jenkins as the first guest to talk about a few of his favorite albums from the last 10 years. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 148, the 10th anniversary, part one. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com where you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. And we're back, and my next guest for this special 10th anniversary episode is a writer, a music journalist, and he's been on the shows quite a number of times before over the years. But most importantly, he was on the very first episode of Love That Album 10 years ago, episode one, where we debated, yeah, we had a all-in wrestling match. It was the Wild, the Innocent, and the East Street Shuffle versus Darkness on the Edge of Town. We had that debate. I haven't listened to it in 10 years, so I don't remember who won that one. I suspect I did. But anyway, the man I'm talking about is my good friend, long-time partner on this show, Mr. Jeff Jenkins. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Happy birthday, Mo. I can't believe it's been 10 years. That's incredible. And what an honor being on that first episode. And I think I did one of the really early episodes too, and we focused on Get the Knack. We did Get the Knack. I think in within the first four episodes, you were on, th- I think, three of the first four or five episodes because we did Get the Knack, we did that Bruce show, and I think we did East and Circus Animals, didn't we? Ah, yes, we did, yeah. I was a regular, and then I never heard from you ever again. You became a big podcast star, and you never called. But it is a great honor to be back on the anniversary show. You're just going to sit by the phone. For anyone out there who thinks that I am a complete asshole, I'm just a partial asshole. Jeff has been on quite a few of the end-of-year favorite albums of the year or favorite albums you heard for the first time that year specials. And here we are. We're recording as Victoria has gone back into lockdown. So normally, Jeff, today we would have been at a show from our beloved Ice Cream Hands, one of our very, very favourite Australian bands. So that got cancelled. Otherwise, I would have come around on another day over to your place. We would have had a beer, would have loaded the computer out, and we would have spoken over a beer and in your lounge room. But here we are having to do this over the phone. I know. I'm sad we're not doing that, but I'm wrapped that we are doing it at all. And 10 years, incredible achievement. Congratulations on that. We're talking about 150 episodes, aren't we now, of Love That Album. Is that right? Uh, very close. I think this is episode 147, so maybe I'll have to have another anniversary once I get to 150. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and I do all the anniversaries. You were doing podcasts before everyone was doing podcasts, and every single week it's been interesting. I uh, love that album. So well done to you, my good friend. Thank you so much, Jeff. So the reason I have asked you onto this very special episode is I wanted you to list not necessarily favorite albums, but a couple of albums that you have reviewed 
revered, that you thought were really special over the lifespan of the show. So something over the last 10 years, and you've come up with a couple of albums. So let's talk about those. What's your first pick? Well, I want to highlight five albums, but focus on two of them. But going back to 2011, uh, which is when Love That Album started, Skipping Girl Vinegar, one of my favourite bands, put out their second album that year called Keep Calm, Carry the Monkey. Here she comes, the hen of summer, rustled on and upon each other, and while away the afternoon till of the sun. released a third album in 2015 called The Great Way, which is also a wonderful record. Now, if you're not familiar with Skipping Girl Vinegar, it really sort of showcases the songwriting of a guy called Mark Lang, who's just a great songwriter. Sound-wise, kind of like the offspring of, say, Things of Stone and Wood, a Melbourne folk pop band, not entirely different to to the Warner Brothers, who you had on the show recently Mm. as well. Just a great, great band. They're very exciting. Look, I'm sad to say I've only seen them the once. That was at a Queenscliff Music Festival, but they just absolutely blew me away. Yeah, wonderful live. Just a really warm connection with their audience. Just one of the great live bands. I don't know if we're going to get to see more from Skipping Girl Vinegar, but we'll certainly get to hear more solo work from Mark Lang. And so look out for that. Really, really great. Then fast forwarding to 2017, uh, a woman from Perth named Helen Shanahan released her debut album called Every Little Sting. Living in this dark, broken house, it stays locked. Living in this shell, can't get out, they can't tell, and so I hide. Cause I know if I take one step out of the line, they're waiting outside. I initially came across uh, Helen at a singing competition, a singing and songwriting competition. I was one of the judges. She came on stage and she was so nervous. And you know, when you see that on stage, it just really made me nervous. I thought, oh no, this is going to be a disaster. I felt embarrassed for her. I just, it was awkward. And then she started singing and I literally had chills and I thought, oh my God, she is incredible. And Helen Shanahan's a great songwriter as well. Her debut album documents a lot of stuff, but particularly her battle with anxiety. Uh, She made it with American producer Brad Jones, who clearly loves working with Australian artists. He's worked with Missy Higgins and Bob Evans and Melody Poole, who I'll talk about in a couple of minutes. But Helen Shanahan's Every Little Sting, it's a pop record, but incredible depth in the songwriting. It had me thinking of Lisa Loeb and Sarah McLaughlin and Amy Mann. It's just a great adult contemporary album. So definitely uh, seek that out if any of that sort of sparks any interest in you. But yeah, Helen Shanahan, she's just really wonderful. Speaking of great songwriters too, in 2018, Perry Keys, my favourite singer-songwriter from Sydney, released his fifth album, Jim Salmon's Lament. $20 on a coaster Black Phantom on the wall Loha from Hawaii Via satellite To the sound of Tom T. Hall The beer garden's open Schnitzel tits by the plasma screen Girls are 
shirts and wrangler jeans. And I often said if Springsteen had grown up in Redfern and Sydney, he would sound like Perry Keys. These are incredible tales from the mean streets of Sydney. A great song on this album called Surf and Turf. Uh, but they're all great. Perry Keys has never written a bad song, so I look forward to more work from Perry as well. But just he is a remarkable Australian songwriter. You have been a longtime champion of Perry on this show and on the radio. You've presented his music for quite a long time. You're a huge champion. I take it that you've spoken with him, you've dealt with him over the years as well? Yeah, a great, great guy. We always talk rugby league. I've become a big rugby league supporter. I love the Melbourne Storm. He loves uh, the Rabbitohs and Sydney, obviously growing up in Redfern. So we talk rugby league. We talk songwriting. He loves Springsteen, loves Lou Reed, loves all the greats. Fantastic live. Doesn't get to Melbourne enough, unfortunately. But he's incredibly prolific, too. He's always got a few albums on the go. So there's going to be a lot more material released from Perry Keys. And as I said, never written a bad song is one of the greats i definitely recommend him incredibly highly but brings us to the two albums that i do want to focus on and as you mentioned before melbourne's back in lockdown very sad about that we would have been seeing ice cream hands this weekend but last night i was meant to be seeing melody pool and melody hasn't been to melbourne for a number of years so i was incredibly excited about that but fingers crossed it will be rescheduled for a couple of months down the track melody pool is from Curry Curry, which is near Newcastle in New South Wales. And I was turned on to her work by Bill Page from Mushroom Publishing, one of the great A&R men in the history of Australian music. And he's also been instrumental in Helen Shanahan's career. When I heard Melody's first album, The Hurting Scene, which came out in 2013, I was just blown away. What a voice, incredible songwriting. A remarkable song on that album is called Henry, and it documents the end of a relationship. And that, yeah, just a classic. But I reckon her second album, which came out three years later, is even better. It's called Deep Dark, Savage Heart. Deep Dark, Deep Dark, Deep Dark. a modern day Joni Mitchell in my mind Melody Poole and like Helen Shanahan she documents her struggles in her music and after Deep Dark Savage Heart was released she was the subject of an Australian story which is a wonderful TV series obviously on the ABC I've seen that episode yeah that was uh, quite an eye opener it really was wasn't it just how great she is but yeah, yeah her mental health struggles and, and different things that she talked about in that show yeah, seek it out on iView if you can then she kind of turned her back on the music world and it you know, wasn't for her. But she is back making music now, which I'm incredibly excited about. So I think we'll get a third album from her. Yeah, she's special, Melody Poole. On the second album, she does sing I'm Not Trivial. So she's not afraid to address those serious issues. And she was signed to a record label, Michael Gadinsky's Bloodlines label, for the first two albums. But she really did do things her own way. And there's a song on the second album album called City Lights.
and she sings, I am pressured to show only light, to be filled with all that's good and bright, but I'm a slave to a darkened mind, and who are you to tell me I'll be fine? It's just really, really powerful stuff, this record. As I said, pretty heavy at times, but there are some truly beautiful moments because she's just such a great singer. And I think the standout song is probably a song called Black Dog. just ripped from her diary and she sings people often say there's no time in a day but there's way too much time for me I'm empty and aching my whole world is shaking and the black dog has sat at my feet you can't help but be moved by this record as I said it's not always pretty but it is just a wonderful wonderful record and Melody Poole is yeah one of the greats and deserves a much bigger audience I did get a listen to the album this week and just like listening to some of these lyrics, I mean, the, as you say, the music is beautiful and creative, but this is an album that's therapy. Uh, like that opening song, Deep Duck, Savage Heart. I thought if she was writing about someone in particular, I'd be wanting to go hide my head after that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's brutal. And I think that's been a big story of the past decade and for the Love That Album duration is the number of incredible female artists in Australian music. And the Aria Hall of Fame, which obviously started in the late 80s, is just so ridiculously dominated by male artists because, you know, that's kind of what the industry was back in the 70s and 80s. But it's going to be a much different story in the next sort of decade and the next couple of decades. We are just blessed with so many wonderful female artists like Melody Poole, like Helen Shanahan, and so many others. It's just been a real joy in the past decade. Fantastic. Okay, and you have another pick? Yes. My album of the decade is by an Aussie legend, uh, Mark Seymour. Mark Seymour and the Undertow. It only came out last year, 2020. It's called Slow Dawn. Broken country where the cattle sniff the ground. A north wind was blowing the day the bones were found. Hidden in the ashes for any fool to see. And it's rolling over me. And for anyone listening overseas, uh, of course, Mark Seymour was in a legendary Australian band called Hunters and Collectors. And growing up, I was a Hunters fan, but I wasn't like an obsessed fan like a lot of people were. I just reckon Mark Seymour is getting better and better. No doubt. I listened to this album for the first time once again as well this week. And like you, I wasn't like necessarily the world's biggest Hunters and Collectors fan. I've got Ghost Nation, which I will loudly declare is you know, just one of the great Australian albums, certainly of the 80s. And you can't go past human frailty as well if you do want to check out the Hunters catalogue. But I'd also say that Mark Seymour, he has this Aussie bloke image, but there's nothing finer than being in a crowd full of blokes who are singing. You don't make me feel like I'm a woman anymore. 
Who else has done that besides Mark Seymour? I mean, Jeff, yeah. really? Yeah, no, he is one of the greats. And, and as I said, this album, Slow Dawn, came out last year when we had lots of lockdown back then as well. I probably listened to this album pretty much every day. And it's a real journey for me. And it starts with a drive, a song called Night Driving. <laughs> like a hungry ghost, FM kissed in the yellow mist, and it just sets the scene. There's a real edge to his voice. It just grabs you by the scruff of the neck and doesn't let go for the entire album. When I listened to the album, and that's, as you say, that's the opening cut, I thought, is this Mark Seymour? doesn't sound anything like Mark Seymour. The only other solo album of his that I'd listened to was Undertow from however many years back. Yeah, the first one with this band, yes. Right, and his voice sounded different there as well, but this sounded really different. I mean, it's still very gruff and gritty, and to be honest with you, I think I prefer his voice in 2021 than it was in the 80s, but it doesn't sound like the same guy. I mean, what's happened? Has he been drinking lots of whiskey or something like that? Yeah, I I don't know, but he's a better singer now and a better songwriter, and that's a huge praise because, as we said, The Hunters are a legendary Australian band. But there are also some really tender moments on Slow Dawn, the title track and the closing song, The Whole World is Dreaming. Sleep, sleep now, my love. There's nothing to fear. I'm right here beside you. Fly, fly through the night. The stars in the window. Are as beautiful as anything he's ever done in his career, and of course that includes the classic "Throw Your Arms Around Me." As I said, he's just getting better and better. And one of the many things I love about this record is that this is an artist who's in his 60s. He's got nothing left to prove, but he still wants to make a classic album. So he shook things up creatively. He went to Byron Bay to make the album with the producer Nick Dia. He didn't know Nick personally, but he just really liked his work, wanted to work with him. And of course, Nick Dia is the American guy who came to Australia originally to work with Powderfinger and made a number of records with Powderfinger. And he loved Australia so much, he decided to stay mm. and has made some great albums, including Slow Dawn. The other thing to note, too, is this is Mark Seymour's 10th solo album. He's now made more solo albums than he has with Hunters and collectors which is quite remarkable as well it is the fourth album to be credited to the undertow and that's a great band as well cameron mckenzie long time mark seymour collaborator on guitar and cameron is from my all-time favorite band horsehead so i I love cameron's work and he is just great on this record john favaro who we got to know when he was in the bad loves he's on bass great bass player and a great bloke as well and peter maslin from boom crash opera on drums who's been playing with Mark Seymour for a long time now as well. But they are just 
the perfect band. And, and the reason I say that is that they are just so sympathetic to these songs. They never overplay. And I think that's the thing about great, experienced musicians, people who are comfortable in their own skin. It's not a case of, look at me, look at me, I'm so great, look at what I'm playing. They serve the song. And, right. and for this record, they just allow the story to slowly unfold, and it just reveals its secrets over time. To me, Slow Dawn is like the great Australian novel. It's just filled with mystery and intrigue and just images you'll never forget. The other thing that I really like about this is I'm glad that this was recorded now rather than say you know whatever 30 years ago where production values for you know some Australian albums were a little less than optimum I think you know that when people were still sort of enamored with Sheen and this album sounds it's crackling it sounds vital the production as well as the musicianship serve these songs well and that's just from you know a couple of quick listens but both those two picks that we've just discussed with a little bit of detail are uh, definitely going on my purchase list because this is, as you say, an incredible album. Thanks for putting it in my path. I'm glad you like it just on those first couple of listens, which is exactly what it was for me. I had even though I've been very familiar with Mark's work, obviously, like we all have been. But when I put it on, I had no preconceptions. I wasn't expecting really anything at all. And it just grabbed me straight away from that first song, Night Driving. But as I said, then took me on that trip. And even though I said it's like the great Australian novel, it does take the listener all around the world. We go to South Africa in one song, to America, to Kelly Country in Victoria. So it really is a sort of a travel log in a lot of ways but it's just an extraordinary record. I think my favourite track on the album is a song called Against My Will. Revelation screaming in the void I'm not worried, I'm just changes every day depending on what mood I'm in every song on the album's a winner it's an Aussie classic album of the decade for mine Mo so album of the last 10 years or album for the 2020s nothing will get better to me it's one of those ones it's if I was documenting, you know, the top 50 albums, Australian albums of all time, this would be in there comfortably. To me, it is just, and yeah, a classic regardless of when it was released. I think the sign of a good album, and I'm pretty sure you'd be in line with this, is you get to the final track and then you want to press play again and listen to it straight away. And based on my couple of listens, the second listen took place straight after the first. Yep. And it was like that for me from day one with this album. I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe how good this is. And I just wanted to share it with people and I wanted to, to play it on the radio. And as you said, you just wanted to press play again when it came to the end. Yeah, Mark Seymour and The Undertow and Slow Dawn. Okay, so five great recommendations for you folks. Five albums that meant a lot to Jeff over the course of the last decade, the lifespan of the Love That Album podcast. As I said, Jeff, thank you so much for being a part of this. It meant a lot to me that, that you said yes. So what are you working on at the moment? You completed the book of a lifetime because that's how long it took to write about Molly. <laughs> 
We sure did. We did two Molly books, so I'm glad they finally happened. That that took a lot longer than a decade, but I'm glad that happened. But I'm actually working on something which you'll be excited about because you've talked about it on Love That Album. The Sound As Ever Facebook page has been a phenomenon in Australia in the past year. I think it's got more than 17,000 members. Our good buddy Scotty Pop started it with another good friend of ours, Jane Gazzo, and it celebrates 90s Australian indie music. Just absolutely huge. People have been engaging with it in such a big way. So I'm going to give Jane Gazzo a hand with uh, a Sound As Ever book. Oh, and wow. it's kind of going to be like sort of a scrapbook for want of a better term. And you know how in, you know, back in the 80s, it'd be like the Smash Hits Annual, 1984 or whatever it was. And it would be a real celebration of that year. You know, light and bright, lots of fun, just sort of looking at the music from that year. Whereas this is obviously not going to focus on one year. It's going to focus on a decade, the 90s, and be the sound as ever scrapbook. So I'm really, really enjoying it and just getting in, into it now. And it's funny, you know, we've just gone back over the last decade. It's funny to go back, you know, 30 years ago. And it, it only seems like yesterday in a lot of ways, but it was, it was a great era in music. So I'm really excited about that. And so, yeah, looking forward to the sound as ever scrapbook taking shape. So what will the format of the book be, if you can reveal that sort of thing? Is it going to be focus on bands or as you say, is it going to go year by year? What's it going to be? Well, we're certainly in, it's not going to be an encyclopedia because our good friend Ian Mack, the great mm. Ian Mack, has already done that. Anyone doesn't have the Encyclopedia of Australian Rock and Pop, they definitely need to get that. So it won't be like that, but it will, to a point, sort of, you know, document that decade, but be a lot of fun. I, you know, all rock nerds like you, you and me, we love a list. So there'll be a lot of lists in this book. Mm. And some of them might be the 10 greatest songs of the decade, but it might be something flip flippant like the 10 greatest rock hairstyles of the decade so it'll be a lot of fun hopefully celebrating all of that uh, telling all the great big stories in Australian music of the 90s it really is sort of a work in progress at the moment but I think it's going to be a lot of fun and with great photos really taking people back to that era the venues that they love the bands that they love it was a fascinating decade too and you've spoken to Scotty Pop about this it was just before the internet kicked in so it was just before the world changed the 90s before the music industry changed and the rest of the world changed. So it's a great story to tell and so much great Australian music was released in that decade. Yeah, fingers crossed it'll turn out really well. I think that decade cemented, I mean, it was probably already true, but it really cemented for those of us who were old enough to sort of go through this, what a great music town Melbourne is. I mean, it seemed like Sydney often lost venues, but every time Melbourne lost a venue, another one would pop up open. Uh, it was incredible. And for example, as I mentioned before, my all-time favourite band, Horsehead, they, they ran from 1992 to 2000. So they ran almost the entire 90s. I was one having too much time on my hands, uh, wrote down every single venue in Melbourne that I saw Horsehead, and it was 28 venues. Wow. And it was just quite incredible that you would think back to that era and you think, oh, well, the key venues, we know the Punters Club and the Evelyn and the Espy, but it was like, yeah, 28 separate venues I saw 
one band play at in Melbourne back in the 90s. It was a great era in Australian music. Well, let me ask you, how many of those 28 venues are still open? Yeah, it's a good question. I'll have to go back over the list and probably, you know, maybe only about sort of, you know, half a dozen to 10 of them. Probably not even that, probably half a dozen. But that's the thing, as you're saying about how great Melbourne is, venues do come and go, which is unfortunate when they do close. But, you know, other ones will pop up. Whereas I think in Sydney, it's probably been, you know, venues have closed and they haven't been replaced. You know, we certainly do miss some great venues. Speaking of Ian Mackie, just wrote a wonderful article about the Continental. We've never really replaced the Continental. But other venues have disappeared and they have been replaced with something, you know, different but almost as good. So, yeah, we are very, very fortunate to live in a great music city in Melbourne. And, yeah, fingers crossed we'll be out of lockdown soon and be enjoying it again. I think, look, for a while, for the last few years, I think the role of the Continental sort of fell to the caravan. Sadly, the caravan, as it was in Oakley, bit the dust because of COVID lockdown last year. They've moved out to uh, Gippsland. And have you been there yet to Archie's Creek? I have not been to Archie's Creek. One of my workmates has. And I didn't even realise, I, I don't know if that's going to change, but at the moment, the Archie's Creek venue, it's an outdoor stage. Yeah, I got down there recently, and you would have loved this, Mo, one of your all-time favourite bands, Weddings, Parties, Anything. I saw them at Archie's Creek a few weeks back, and it was just great. It was, yeah, as you mentioned, outdoor gig. It's like an enormous beer garden. Um, they built a great stage. Just a really, one of those vibes when you walk into a place and you instantly feel comfortable. You know, for a start, you're in the country it's got that welcoming sort of country hospitality but just a fantastic vibe and of course the weddows were wonderful um i think over winter they can do a, a couple of gigs inside but that they'll be a bit smaller but yeah it is sort of an outdoor vibe uh, but a bit of a marquee as well you, you'll love it when you get there i've no doubt that will happen fingers crossed i will still get to see the weddows because i booked a year in advance for the 2022 port ferry folk festival was one of the headlining bands there and I thought what the hell I haven't been to Port Ferry in a long time I think Max might have been five years old or something like that was the last time I was there so I thought "Mm, about time I headed back out there so Joanne and I are going to go out there and I called up our very good friend Michael Persh and said hey Michael you want you and Sue want to meet us in uh, Port Ferry drive from Adelaide and he said yep done oh Ripper you'll have a great time and and we'll be uh, singing along to all the old Weddows songs so, I mean, that's that's a large part of the 90s for me. I mean, I think, you know, as much as you said that you saw Horsehead in a ton of venues, I mean, I can't probably count the number of venues I saw the Widows in, but I definitely saw them a good, like, over the course of their original run, something like about 50 times. So would have been a few venues in there. What a great band. And, and what a joy it is to Michael Thomas's, uh, Mick Thomas's brand new album, a new version of Under the Clocks, a Weddows classic. I'm loving that. I haven't heard that yet. Has he slowed it down? Well, won't you meet me Under the clocks We'll go walking by the river through The mud and through the slime Are you so surprised That I am here Full of cheer At this fair city In the winter time 
a little bit, it's just a different sort of version, but you just go, wow, what a great song. And it fits in beautifully on this new Mick Thomas album, which is a collection of Melbourne songs. So some, you know, some old sort of Mick Thomas stuff, but also songs by Charles Jenkins and, and different writers about Melbourne. It's, yeah, it's a real treat. You're going to love it. Look, thank you so much once again, Jeff. Much success for that Sound as Ever book. Uh, I'll have to have you and Jane come on the program to talk about the book and have your 90s reminiscences when, when the time comes. Really looking forward to that. Awesome, and I'd love to. But yeah, happy birthday to you, Mo. Here's to the next 10 years of Love That Album. Fingers crossed we make it. All right, we'll be back in a moment with whoever the next person I call up on this see show is. You're listening to Love That Album. Morning, see me through the dead. See me through the ugliness of mine. See me dance through summer and see me bloom through spring and meet me in the midst of a mariachi wind, a mariachi wind. Welcome back to our 10th anniversary show of Love That Album. And part of the reason why I've made it this far is because there have been so many wonderful people who've wanted to have conversations about music that they love. And one of those people who I've invited to come on this 10th anniversary edition is an author, and I've just discovered is a fellow drummer, a fellow who wrote what is an essential tome if you're a fan of Australian music, which means it's an essential tome. The book is the Australian Encyclopedia of Rock and Pop. Ian McFarlane, welcome back to the show, Ian. Yes, good evening, Morris. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Always good value to be chatting with you about music and film. (laughs) Indeed. Oh, that's what I was going to tell you before we started recording. The first time that you and I spoke on the podcast was on See Here podcast. I got you on to talk about, from a film perspective, the 1976 film directed by Chris Levine, Oz, a rock and roll road movie. Um, And next month's episode is of Love That Album. We'll be talking talking about the soundtrack because I found out that Sarah Carroll is a oh, big, yeah. had recently watched the film and absolutely loved it. And so I said, oh, do you want to talk about the soundtrack on Love That Album? She said, absolutely. So uh, there you <laughs> go. I'm already revealing this. Next month's episode is going to be with Sarah Carroll talking about the soundtrack of Oz, a rock and roll road movie, or as the Americans call it, 20th Century Oz. 20th Century Oz, that's right. I have to um, pass on some sad news. The um, wizard Graham Matters has died just recently. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that one. Yeah, that I only heard, just heard about it myself. We'll have to dedicate that episode to uh, yeah, Graham. Graham the Wizard Matters. Yeah, we'll be uh, probably find some excuse to talk about the film as well and Sarah's <laughs> enthusiasm for it. Actually, as of this time, she said, oh, you really need to speak to Jeff Burston as well because he was part yeah. of Jojo Zepp and the Falcon. So she gave me his phone number and we'll be having Jeff on the show as well. So that'll be absolutely magnificent. Exactly. And Ross Wilson uh, in January, he did a concert called Living in the Land of Oz concert where he, he did where he sang his catalogue and Living in the Land of Oz was his first solo single which was the I guess the main theme song for the record and I, I heard him speaking to James Valentine on 774 and he went into great detail about how he wrote the song and what it meant and you know how it fitted in with the film and things like that so that's quite a fascinating story even in itself oh,
I mean, thinking about that song, and I'm sorry, we're interrupting the <laughs> the choices that you're going to be giving to us for this show, but it just seems like a, a worthwhile conversation. I'm sure we'll be speaking more about it with Sarah and Jeff in next month's show. But that song, Living in the Land of Oz, was way ahead of its time. In some ways, it should have happened a lot sooner than that. But just when you think about its subject matter... The subject matter, totally, yeah. White yeah. Australia's cruel treatment of the indigenous population. No one else was doing that in 1976. And it took years before anyone else had a mainstream pop hit with that subject matter. I mean, you'd go maybe a few years later to Shane Howard and Goanna with Solid Rock. It was like a popular thing for Midnight All as well. But really, Ross the Boss was the, the first white musician to do that sort of thing. I think at the time, people just didn't get the strength of the lyrics that he was you know his words and what he was singing about for whatever reason people chose not to acknowledge it or just didn't resonate um, at the time but it's had a great life and it's still relevant to today it was also diversion from the actual film story itself in a way but it's it's relevant because it was the title track anyway but indeed so the reason that you're here and the reason that our other guests who I've yet to record with are here is to talk about an album that you really love from the last 10 years. And I picked the last 10 years, obviously, because Love That Album has been around for 10 years. So basically, I asked you to pick an album or however many albums you wanted over the lifespan of the show that had meant something really important to you, something that you really, really loved. And you have picked a couple of albums. So... Let's talk about those. What's your first pick? Okay, just before I get into the first pick, it was interesting when you mentioned that you, you wanted to do a 10-year kind of view and pick something that um, an album recorded since then that resonated with you. You know, I was really racking my brain. Not that there wasn't anything. There was just too much in, in some <laughs> ways <laughs> to pick from. And then they, then it kind of dawned on me, well, there are two that clearly stand out. I have to talk about two. And the first one, I guess I cheat a little bit because, well, it's a film soundtrack for a start about an era that was like in the 70s. I'm kind of backtracking, but I'm talking about the film soundtrack to the incredible movie Good Vibration. about the Belfast punk scene from 77, 78 onwards. So the basic story is about Terry Hooley. He was a fanatical record collector and he set up a record shop and founded a label during the heyday of the Belfast punk movement. So that the subtitle of Good Vibrations soundtrack is a record shop, a label, a film soundtrack. The story is really about his journey. He came out of the hippie movement, there was what they called the Troubles in Belfast, so he kind of lived through that, and he set up this record shop predominantly to, to sell ska music and 60s pop, just because he wanted people to have some kind of joy in their lives, and he thought, music, what other way could you do it? Music and records. But what happened was, all the local punks who had started to converge around Belfast in 77 used to come into his shop and, you know, they started off by trying to nick records and what have you, but then they started up, can we put this ad in your record shop? And he was like, yeah, you know, really kind of anti all that sort of, you know, who are these young punks, you know, coming in annoying me? 
And then he ended up going to some of these punk shows. The scene in the movie is him just like absolutely beside himself in raptures, listening to bands like Rudy and the Outcasts and the Undertones who came out of that whole Belfast punk scene. And the soundtrack is phenomenal, mm. uh, Morris. And I know you are a fan and you love this music just as much. Absolutely. Uh, so to kind of, it's so wide, it's so broad in a way to try and encompass what the soundtrack and, you know, all the different elements. But it starts off with a track from Hank Williams called I Saw the Light. I wondered so aimless life filled with sin I wouldn't let my dear Savior in Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night Praise the Lord, I saw the light Which is kind of like a theme for Terry Hooley and his journey into coming out of the hippie movement into the punk movement and embracing that and then there are some of his favourite songs get played things like the Shangri-Las Past, Present and Future he loved the Shangri-Las and the Animals there's a great Animals track called Outcast and then there's things like the Upsetters Freedom Train, which was a 1969 Jamaican Scar track. And then there's a track from Bert Yanch, Angie, which is a, a classic English folk song from the mid-60s. So the movie starts with that, and the soundtrack starts with that basis from those songs that were important to Terry Hooley in his younger years. And then, you know, he's so enraptured with the local punk scene that he sets up his Good Vibrations record label and the first band he signs is a band called Rudy R-U-D-I he goes to one of their shows just as I was saying before you know the scene is him just in raptures jumping you know pogoing to this band Rudy and their track is Big Time One of the classic 1978 Belfast pop punk tunes. It's an absolute ripper. And it was Good Vibrations, G-O-T-1, the very first single released on the Good Vibrations label. And there's also another great scene in the movie where he comes into contact with the undertones. And they cut a single for him called Good Vibrations Got 4, G-O-T-4. And that was Teenage Kicks. So the storyline uh, merges with John Peel's love of the undertones and teenage kicks and Terry Hooley uh, meets John Peel and John Peel was a great champion of Teenage Kicks, in fact his favourite ever song, so that kind of comes into the story as well and there's a great scene where they're recording the song and he holds up a big sign, he's written the words H-I-T with two exclamation marks, hit, and of course it's the, it's the undertones recording Teenage Kicks 
Although I think the scene is they were recording something and they didn't really get what he wanted to hear and he went off and did something else. But then he comes back in and the engineer says, oh, you should have heard the track they just recorded and they replay Teenage Kicks and it's Mm. another gem for him. And then there's a couple of other great Irish punk bands, Stiff Little Fingers. Mm-hmm. They get a couple of tracks, Alternative Ulster. Here's the Australian connection. And hey, This Perfect Day is included on this soundtrack because that was their first single recorded in the UK, 1977. So that comes into the whole scene. There's another band that he was in contact with who were kind of like his charges as well, was the band called The Outcasts. And there's, <laughs> I keep coming back to the film because it's a very funny film in a lot of ways even though it's a bit kind of dour because he has lots of struggles, you know, money-wise and things like that. Things don't work out for the bands. And But there's a band called The Outcasts. And, of course, you know, he'd signed Rudy and the, and the Undertones and The Outcasts. I think at one stage they ended up recording for him, but... He said to they said to him, how come you're not recording us? And he said, oh, you're not good enough, <laughs> or something like that. So the moment in the film where Terry Hawley says to the undertones... I'll put that record out. You're past. So what? You're making a record. And then Rudy comes past and says, will you record us too? I'm not that good. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so it's very funny in a way. So these young callow youths, you know, these punks with their leather jackets and, you know, their ripped T-shirts and stuff like that, they found a, a champion in Terry Hooley, but they had to kind of prove their metal, you know. They had to prove themselves that they were actually good enough to be on the Good Vibrations label. Not that he was trying to be elitist, but he certainly had a vision and they fell into place. So one of the outcast singles on Good Vibrations, GOT 17, is a track called Self-Conscious Over You. ends the movie and I'm a real huge fan of punk. Uh, I grew up in the 70s so I was, you know as a teenager I was listening to glam and metal and what have you and then of course as soon as I got to 18 the whole punk scene emerged in Australia and I heard stuff coming out of the UK so I really love a lot of punk as much as any 70s music but the thing I've always found about the particularly the English punk tracks a lot of the classic singles were three minute pop songs no matter what the sound was or what the attitude or the intent was, they are just three-minute pop songs. I mean, they get to the main hook and the chorus within the first minute, just about every one of them. And there's all, all the songs on this soundtrack, you know, Big Time by Rudy and Teenage Kicks by The Undertones and Alternative Ulster and Self-Conscious Over You by The Outcast. They are just classic pop songs, but in a punk milieu, if you'd like. Yeah. But the interesting thing about this whole thing about why I love this so much is let's put it into perspective Morris is that you know the movie came out in in 2013 for some reason it just flew under the radar for me it escaped my attention until last year literally I stumbled across it and I watched it and I thought fuck how did I miss this anyway I just was so enraptured with the movie I I found a copy of the, the soundtrack 
you know, and it's got, you know, 24 killer tracks on it. As I said, the Shangri-Las tracks are just incredible. The Undertones, Rudy, on and on, The Saints, etc. But then, so I'm kind of cheating, as I said, in a way. So that fits in with the 10-year theme that you're talking about because it came out in 2013, even though it's from an earlier era. So the film itself actually flew under the radar in Australia. I don't think it showed up here till 2014 or something like that. So two years after it was released in, in Ireland and then it came here a couple of years later. And, and I just, ah. it was compulsive. I thought, right, I've got to see that. Before, okay. before we go any further, I just have to give a quick shout out to a lovely, lovely fellow called Colin McCowan, who I'm proud to say is a member of the Love That Album and See Here communities. And he is the script editor for Good Vibrations. I had no knowledge of him when I first watched a <laughs> film and then he approached me like a year later and said, oh, God bless. I've just heard your show uh, because we spoke about this on the See Here podcast. He said, I've just listened to the show. I'm so glad you liked it. And I said, why? He said, well, I, I was a script editor for that film and I was just <laughs> blown away that someone who had been part of a film mm. I hold so close to my heart was in the community that you know I was trying to encourage to get people to talk about music-related films. And he's hugely knowledgeable, big fan of movies and music, film director. He's starting to make his own films in his own right. Just a lovely, lovely, lovely guy. So a uh, big shout out to you, Colin. Great. That's fantastic. So what we're saying, well, what I'm saying is it snuck up on me, you know. I knew a lot of the music. Obviously, I'd heard the undertones and stiff little fingers, and I'd known about the names Rudy and the Outcasts. But to actually kind of put all the pieces together and be so enraptured in, in the soundtrack. You know, some of these English music movies can be a bit hit and miss, but I really love 24-Hour Party People, for example, which was done earlier in the 2000s, and Control, which was profiled uh, Ian Curtis mm -hmm. and uh, Joy Division. So I, I really love those kind of movies and so it, it, for me this kind of creates a trilogy which I think are just a really really good movies with fantastic soundtrack. Take away the movie if someone had gone and presented you a CD say right we've gone to put together this anthology and it's got Hank Williams The Shangri-Las, <laughs> Burt Yanch, Stiff Little Fingers The Upsetters, The Undertones you'd think this can't work and yet can't work. independent <laughs> of the movie I play this CD all the time. It works. It's fantastic. Yes, exactly. Well, here's another one. David Bowie, the track star from Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> you know, that just that gets thrown in there as well. It's just like, my goodness. So it works perfectly as a program of music to play separately. But then when you actually see the movie and the way the soundtrack is being constructed around the storyline as much as anything is the whole thrust of the movie and... So I would urge anyone to, A, track down the movie if you've never seen it, and B, listen to the soundtrack. So Absolutely. That's my first pick, Morris. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I believe that your second pick is something that was actually recorded in the last 10 years. Exactly. I discovered this last year. It's from a Melbourne-based singer-songwriter called Leah Senior. Her third album called The Passing Sea. I never thought I'd be ever This 
one just blew me out of the water, which is why I wanted to pick it from the last 10 years. She's a, a young singer-songwriter, predominantly in the folk-pop kind of style. Yes, her third album, I hadn't heard her previous two, so once again, once I heard the passing scene, I backtracked and found out a little bit more information about Leah Senior. She's done three albums on the Flightless label, which is run by the guys from King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. So if anyone's heard King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard albums, and I probably could have picked one of theirs to even <laughs> feature, it's, it's, it's amazing because they picked her to record on their label. The, what the King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard guys do with their releases on Flightless is every album has a really unique packaging and also comes in coloured vinyl. And they only do 500 copies, 500, a pressing of 500 copies. So if you don't get in quickly, you miss out. So, and that's it. I mean, then you can get it on CD if you wanted. So, Leah Cena's album comes in with a pasted on, is it called lenticular? I think where it's those sort of, you run your fingernail along and it's got like ridges, it's a photo, and then you move it around and people move across it or images move across it. I know what you're talking about. I don't know yes. what that's called. I can only think of lenticular. I don't think lenticular. I don't think that's the word, but it's a process where the various images are superimposed and you move it around and your eye sees other parts. It's a kid's, very much a kid's thing. Kids looked at clowns or animals or something and other things moved around. Anyway, so it's that stuck on the front cover and then the copy I got hold of is in green vinyl. But um, here's the thing, before I talk about Leah Senior herself and the music, this is what we're saying off air earlier, Morris. I try and find out what's actually being released and you can't keep up with everything. But for some reason, after three albums, I had never even heard of Leah Senior and I only read about her in an English magazine called Shindig. And it was like, what? How come I've never actually ever known about this girl? Who is this girl? So I have to investigate it. So there was this big article in Shindig magazine about Leah Senior talking about Leah, uh, her album. In this article, she mentioned names such as Bridget St. John and Nick Drake. And I thought, how can a young singer-songwriter from Melbourne know about these names? But... As it turned out, um, I had to investigate and I, I found out who she was and I ended up interviewing her and doing an article for Rhythms magazine, mm. which was lovely. And she was just a really lovely lady talking about her music. And, you know, once again, when she mentioned that she's mostly drawn to 60s and 70s British folk, Nick Drake, Fairport Convention, Bridget St. John, Vasti Bunyan and all that, I thought, oh, this is my kind of singer-songwriter because I just love all those names and I just love that music. Nick Drake in a Fairport Convention, Sandy Denny. I've spoken at length about Sandy Denny on your podcast. Mm. And so I love that sound, Vashti Bunyan. I saw Vashti Bunyan a few years ago. She came out to Australia as part of the Nick Drake tribute show. So that was wonderful. But then Leah was telling me that she also, as a kid, she was obsessed with the Beatles and Big Star. So all these different elements in this young singer-songwriter have fallen into place for her. So the passing scene is still very much in her folky vein, but it's a, there's a lot more kind of pop element. There's kind of little lighter touches, little jazzy, so it's sort of folk rock and pop with a, with a, even a touch of cosmic country and kind of darker, jazzier, minor key melodies. Mm -hmm. So I was just absolutely captivated with the songs on this record, the title track, the passing scene. Channel 2, do they speak? 
to you I tune in to the wind See birds sailing on a distant sky Jesus turned into a bird, evergreen, graves tracks of this nature they're very simple songs as if she's a really old soul who's just tapped into this really deep-seated musical archetype and so you know you dig deeper into these layers and layers of this gentle kind of music and uh, you know she has a, a rhythm section who are very sympathetic like they don't overplay so it's just this really really captivating music when i first heard this it kind of gave me the buzz that i remember the very first time i heard the first Fleet Foxes album from about 12 years ago. Oh, yes. So so Fleet Foxes, their first album in particular was probably my favourite album from the 2000s, the late 2000s. I think it came out, it might have been 2009 or 2010 maybe. Musically, Leah Senior isn't like the Fleet Foxes, but I'm trying to say it gave me that same feeling of being captivated by the music. So I've, I've certainly thoroughly enjoyed uh, the Leah Senior album, The Passing Scene. And, you know, obviously with COVID last year, she wasn't able to do any shows, but... I know she started doing some shows, but I don't know if she'll be doing any more. So that's very interesting. And just once again, just backtracking a sec, the King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard guys, they know uh, what they like as well. There's also another lady on the label called Grace Cummings who had an album in 2019, which is quite interesting as well. That's once again a different album, but so I won't get into that because I've picked Leah Senior's Passing Scene to talk about here. But look, you can still get it on download platforms and CD, but try and get hold of the vinyl record now is going to be impossible unless you... I think a lot of the Lizard Wizard albums, King Gizzard albums, the original pressings of coloured vinyl are going for hundreds of dollars these days. Insane. Record collecting, it's insane. But yes, I'm certainly hoping that she's going to be able to record another album and yeah, so she's worth investigating. I had heard the name, but like you, I actually hadn't really sort of thought to listen to her until you suggested to me, you know, the other week that, so right, this is going to be one of my picks. So I thought, right, well, I better, <laughs> I better give her a listen and see what this is like. And she really brought to mind a little bit of Jen Cloa, and that's a very, very good thing. So her first two albums are pretty good too. As I said, I backtracked. So Summer's on the Ground from 2015 and Pretty Faces from 2017 as well so i really hope people uh, you know dig deep she's not to everyone's taste but there's definitely something in the music uh, morris that kind of is very captivating i just find it really captivating i don't know whether it's you know she's not forceful she's not trying to be clever it's just really simple emotions and she records everything quite dry like there's 
yet clean. The audio quality is of a very kind of dry sound in the sense that there's no studio manipulation or what have you, mm-hmm. uh, which I kind of like. So you, you can really lose yourself in the sound as much as the actual songs. And she did say to me in the interview that I did, she'd kind of got over her soul searching from the first couple of albums. So this passing scene was a little bit more, I don't know, she kind of opened up a little bit more in the topics she was singing about. Well, thank you very, very much for two very contrasting uh, (laughs) albums of the last decade, but that's exactly what I want. I want to hear diversity. Thank you so much for your time. And it was a real honor to have you on uh, this 10th anniversary show and to hear your picks. Thanks, Morris. No, it's been fun. I really enjoy it. So thanks a lot. Before we let you off, just one last thing. So are people still able to get a copy, if they should so desire, of the Australian Encyclopedia of Rock and Pop? Oh, sure. I have a uh, website, online shop, and an archives page where I put a whole lot of my uh, writings for people to check out. But the webpage is, well, my production company is called Third Stone Press. So it's thirdstonepress.com.au so if people wish to investigate online they can order direct from me and while they're about it you know have a look at um, some of my archival articles that I've put up there from magazines I've written for or what have you liner notes and one thing or another you won't find pages from the encyclopedia because you'll have to buy it but exactly anyway <laughs> you'll, you'll get a you know feel for the flavor of what i write about so what do you got on at the moment writing wise i know that you're always sort of contributing liner notes for any of the aztec releases i recently got a copy of uh, the hoax is over by the aztecs and i think a lot of people and well, even yourself you noted in the liner notes that the gold was not in that album you said you thought that that was a fairly ordinary rather long dragging album with four jam sessions but the gold in the re-release was the tons of bonus material and there is absolutely some stunning work on that absolutely there's live tracks there's singles non-album singles demos billy thought dem- lounge room demos or wherever he you know, wherever he might have recorded them, which are really fascinating. So that's worth investigating, yeah. So Aztec is still doing a couple of good things. There was a really good live, double live Matter Lake album earlier uh, or last year, a Carson Live double album I as got that well. One too. So, yeah, there's, they're less and less, I guess. Gil Matthews obviously runs it and he does all the mastering, so he takes his time in terms of how when he puts things out so they're yeah they're a little bit few and far between these days but my regular thing is for rhythms magazine i've just done a piece on memories of the continental cafe for rhythms magazine um and you know a whole bunch of other stuff so yeah i do that regularly i do the online stuff and uh, liner notes and just things as they come my way wonderful it's so magnificent that you can always keep writing and there's going to be <laughs> someone out there to read it be album liner notes or physical magazine or <laughs> yes well, that's what i hope yeah you hope mm. that someone actually you know there's actually an audience out there for it being on the team for rhythms magazine as a writer is is a lot of fun and brian wise is the editor from he's obviously people also know him from uh, off the record on three triple r so you know that's important that we continue to support that's a physical magazine and he also has a long online version as well and 
so that's worth investigating. So I'm only one of a, you know, like about 20 different writers for the magazine, and every issue there's so much stuff you can delve into. So that's a lot of fun to do. Indeed. All right. Well, once again, thank you so much for your time. Really super appreciate you being part of the scene. So at this stage, I'll just say uh, we'll be back in a moment with whoever I've next programmed up to be on the show. Cool. Thanks, Morris. See ya. Thanks, Ian. Doug returned today. And the next guest on this rolling list of wonderful people associated with the Love That Album podcast is the one person not based in Australia. This is a man who has a long association with the Love That Album podcast. He first showed up, I think, in the episode 17, 18, 19, whatever it was. I can't even remember what the show was, but it was something fairly early on. This man went and sent me some feedback, something which I always crave to the show. But instead of saying, hey, I really dug your show, he said, let me tell you about an album that I love. And I thought, that is a fantastic approach. And I asked him to do this regularly. The man's name is Mr. Eric Peterson, aka Eric Reanimator. Welcome back to Love That Album, Eric. Hello, thanks for having me back. Been a while. You're a critical part of uh, Love That Album's history, and I thought if I'm doing a 10-year anniversary in this fashion, there was no way I was not having you be a part of the show. So you started off with those Album I Love segments, which ran for about 10 minutes every episode. I really loved the diversity between what your picks would be and what my picks would be. And then I think... Once I started the See Here podcast, and I knew I was only going to get one episode of Love That Album out a month, but really wanted to keep up with something for the listeners who wanted to hear something a little bit more frequently. And you said, well, look, I've got an idea for a show. And then you ran your uh, compilation edition episodes. I'm very much missing that. As you said, well, some things have to come to an end. I take it you've still been listening to lots of music, even if you're not recording podcasts about them in the interim. I try to. I have a drive to work now that's about 10 minutes. So I have more time in the car to listen to music, which is where I spend most of my time, most of my music listening time at this point. Mm -hmm. And every week I try to listen to uh, at least one or two of the top countdowns for pop music, usually off of YouTube. And while most of that doesn't appeal to me here and there, I do find some interesting stuff. And then I still follow a lot of the bands that I've always followed. I try to keep my finger out there finding new stuff, but I'm, I'm absolutely not the guy that, that knows all the hip stuff that the kids are listening to. <laughs> uh, my attitude is really that they need to have their own music and their own culture. And if some of it I like, great. I'm not going to be one of those posers that's a very Gen X word, I know. But <laughs> one of those posers that's like, oh, yeah, I really like that Billie Eilish album. There's nothing wrong with Billie Eilish, but it just doesn't speak to me. Mm. On the other hand, I actually really did like the Miley Cyrus record from last year okay so it's a balancing act but the album i'm here to talk about falls in the wheelhouse of so many things that i know you like and that i know very important to me musically which is roots rock surf rockabilly film scores desert rock west coast u.s rock country music that point where either punk rock or rock and roll or soul and pop meet country and roots rock when you asked me to pick an album, there were a couple albums I could have picked that I've, I've been a fan of the last couple of years. But the one that really just jumped out to me was the uh, 2017 Marty Stewart record, Way Out West. Well, it took a little green pill 
in Morency, Arizona On my way out to sunny California Been driving cross country for three long days I was all whooped up in an indigo haze so, for those who don't know, Marty Stewart is mainly known as a sideman and a, a session player in Nashville. He played with Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard and, you know, Flat and Scruggs and, and those group of people. But he's also made records on his own. And the best way I can describe this record is an epic, psychedelic, surf, desert, rock, country album that kind of defies all expectations. And to me, you know, when you get that mix of sounds, it can go wrong so easily, but he manages to get it right. So this was something I wanted to share. And this is also something that I, I thought was going to be maybe more accessible than that weird little death metal record I like, or that, <laughs> you know, that, that super odd ambient record that I keep playing. This is something I think that the Love That Album listeners would enjoy if they check it out. And if it's, they don't enjoy every track, there's a lot of songs on here that you'll enjoy. So I'm curious, what did you think? When you went and suggested this to me a couple of weeks ago after I first asked you to be part of this special, first thing I did was I thought, right, okay, give this a listen. And right from the opening track, which was just, I think, this one-minute thing called Desert Prayer, it sounded like a montage of a psychedelic trip. And I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. And then it goes into Mojave, named after the desert. And ironically, for being a tune named after a desert, it has this classic surf sound with that beautiful Fender reverb. other tunes like quicksand which sounds like it's definitely paying tribute to link ray's rumble but the tune that really grabbed me the most was a great pop tune time don't wait which sounded to me so much like a bird's tune or a monkey's song big bright moon is shining down on the desert sand I reached down, touched the earth, and held it in my hand. In fact, even sort of thinking about the birds, it reminded me a lot of Gene Clark as songwriter because he wrote the great birds song Feel a Whole Lot Better. And there's that acoustic guitar riff in there, which sounds like it's ripped right out of that song. But yeah, absolutely terrific song. And the whole Californian feel and the whole birds relation thing made sense when I saw that it was Mike Campbell of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, who was the producer of this album. So that sort of guitar jangle on that tune and the emphasis on on the, the Fender sound, it just sort of made so much sense with him in the producer's chair. This is a terrific record. I'm definitely ordering myself a copy of this on CD. For me, all of these things it came also as a surprise. I, I knew Marty Stewart from his work with Johnny Cash. I knew that he was part of the 80s country scene. You know, he kind of came up about the same time as, as people like Steve Earle did. And, you know, you expect a certain amount of polished mainstream country music industry 
in this record, and it's definitely there, but he definitely is also paying homage to Marty Robbins and to the birds. And actually, before we started this call, I was watching uh, a little video that I, I will send to you so you can check it out and you can maybe post a link where he talks about the inspirations for this record. And he definitely talks about the birds a lot and how when he started playing with, I believe it was Flatten Scruggs, that he was staying with... Uh, one of the band members who had a bunch of birds records and he asked him well what's with all the birds records and the guy said well my brother plays in that band so it's definitely the the connection there and yeah it's a very surprising album and it's very cohesive and i think one of the things that that i really respond to sometimes people talk about records as being primal but i think this is elemental you have the surf element which is obviously water you have that kind of distorted desert rock in the both the the sound and the lyrics which is definitely earth and then you actually air is also referenced on this album in in a couple of at least one song so he's dealing with with that the setting and how all of these things collide and in addition to being something that you think of with california and los angeles this is something i think about with australia Australia, I think about desert, I think about the surf, I think about the open spaces. So I think that's one of the reasons that this might translate so well to Australia is because the environment and the geography kind of kind of match that of this, you know, American Southwest in a lot of ways. And we didn't even touch on there's Ennio Marconi kind of element to it. And there's a mariachi. So you get the Spanish influence in there as well. which cut it was maybe it was quicksand itself that sounded to me like a morricone spaghetti western soundtrack but anytime you're going to hear that fender reverb guitar Mm -hmm. it really is going to bring us to mind of those great soundtracks yeah absolutely great call on that look overall there's just everything to love about this record and you mentioned the wide open spaces of california and this is sort of like a a concept record if you will where it's all a dedication to california isn't it you know we're calling it yeah way out west they're definitely the sort of band that would slot in here very very well i mean if and when any of the great music festivals that we have here resume again then i could sort of see uh, marty stewart and his band of superlatives they should be a band that they try to get over here to play they definitely go oh, yeah. well down well with local audiences i think i should also say that i wanted to sort of like you know listen to a little bit more of what marty stewart does and he has this incredibly large back catalog there's a few albums with the superlatives and quite a bunch that he did on his own but the other one that i listened to was uh, soul's chapel so Somebody saw me It also showed the vocal harmony side of 
country music. There's just some great gospel songs on that album. And that's also another thing that hugely appeals to me, gospel harmonies. Yeah. yeah the combination of his band and that Fender guitar sound as well with, with the harmonies. It, it just really does something for me. So thanks for bringing this one to my attention because this is these are a couple of albums I definitely mean to get hold of. I think more likely on Discogs. Doesn't seem like it's otherwise locally available. The other reason I wanted to bring this one is that oftentimes I look at records that are from a rock band or a punk band that are bringing country elements into their sound, where this is definitely a country artist who's bringing rock sounds into their album, which we don't often see done in this way quite as much. And for me, the last couple of years, I found myself listening to a lot more country and modern country music. You know, I have this ongoing thing where people will be like, oh, I like all kinds of music except for country. And then I'll say, well, you don't like Johnny Cash. And they'll go, "Okay, I like Cash. And then they'll say, you don't like Willie Nelson. And then they'll say, "Okay, I mean the new country stuff. (laughs) But what I'm finding is that while there was a monolithic sound in country music maybe five, six years ago, that we're really starting to see that breakdown and we're starting to see more of what's in the country mainstream now bring in these other sounds and influences much more than the last 10, 15 years. And I think that people are, are potentially missing out on a, a lot of really good stuff because of that perception of what country music was. Now, that bro country, as it's called, is still out there. But I'm, I'm just looking at some of my favorite albums from the last couple of years. In addition to Way Out West, you've got Shooter Jennings' Shooter album, which is very much an 80s country style record that's really great. And then Nikki Lane's Highway Queen, which has been one of my favorite records of the uh, the last several years. That also is country, but it's bringing in these other elements and sounds. And sometimes they get tagged as outlaw country, but it's not in the same way that their Shooter's father was an outlaw back in the 70s. You know, I mentioned I watch a lot of these YouTube videos every week with the pop countdown or whatever. And I think it's important to keep your ears open to try to listen non-judgmentally and just think, wow, this is something I don't know that, that I would have listened to whether, you know, if I hadn't run across it somewhere. Mm. So I, I really do hope that, that people will check this record out. I think it's pretty great. And I think that as time goes on, more and more people will discover it. Here's hoping if at least even half a dozen people who might be listening to this show think, all right, well, I'm liking the little snippets of tunes that I'm hearing in the background. Yes, I'm definitely going to go search this out. Then we've done our job. Yes, exactly. As I said, I'm really Really, really grateful that you threw this in my path. And that's something that I should definitely add here is that over the years that you were doing this segment, there were bands that I would never have discovered if not for you. There were things like the soundtrack of our lives and the Ultra Bimboos, two examples there. And that's something that I was really grateful that I done this podcast at all over the years is how people like yourself and John Ross and Tim Merrill have gone and put things in my past said, hey, you really need to listen to this. And I became fans of stuff that they recommended as well as things that people gone and put into the Facebook group in general. So it's not just about me mouthing off on a podcast. It's about wonderful people like yourself saying, hey, if you like that, check this out. Well, I'm glad to hear that. The, the whole goal should be to share this music that you find in If it doesn't strike somebody's fancy, that's fine. I I think that the biggest challenge that I find is getting somebody to give something a chance without having prompting from other exterior sources and without having preconceived notions. And 
you know, that's why when for me, when I when I suggest a piece of media, whether it's a movie or a podcast or an album, I, I often say, just give it 20 minutes, hmm. give it 20 minutes, give it 25 minutes to see if it hooks you in or if it's your thing. Beyond art, I think one of the biggest things we can do is, is try to give each other 15, 20 minutes to see what it is we're talking about or interested in to see if something it really is or isn't for us and our sensibilities. And I think that when you're open to actively checking things out, that you get a better sense of what your wheelhouse is and what might be something that's of interest to you. Coming back to the point, though, that you were talking about a few minutes ago about, you know, people who may have more rock interests and insisting that they don't like country. That seems to have sort of been a bit of a theme over the early episodes that we've been listening to from season two of Cocaine and Rhinestones. I don't know if oh, you've yeah. had a chance to listen to that yet. I've oh, just, yeah, I've been keeping up. Right. So I've just finished listening to the fourth episode where he's talking about White Lightning by uh, George Jones. Well, in North Carolina, way back in the hill, near my old baby and he had him a steal. He brewed white lightning till the sun went down and then he'd fill him a jug and he'd pass it around. Mighty, mighty please him, pack his corn squeeze him. We keep sort of thinking that bias is purely a rock against country thing. But of course, what I'm getting a lot out of this is a lot of country radio back in that period where Jerry Lee Lewis was coming up and Elvis Presley was coming up. They were probably in a couple of the few exceptions that country radio would play. But then you get the early stuff that George Jones was doing, Mm -hmm. which was, you know, riding that rockabilly train and radio sort of not knowing what to do with it because they thought, damn it, we want more pure country. Yeah, there's a long history of those subgenres that that don't seem to cross over well or that should cross over that don't necessarily get the get the open-mindedness. I keep running across still the punk versus metal thing and I'm thinking it's 2021, haven't we gotten past this? <laughs> I mean, how many times do a punk bands need to cover metal or metal bands need to cover punk for us to be like Oh, I get it. Or to realize that the Blue Oyster Cult and that Motorhead both were basically had one foot in the punk world, one foot in the metal world. And when it comes to this country versus rock thing, all all I can think is, you know, this has got to be marketing. This is this has got to (laughs) be something because I can't listen to that because I'm a whatever, you know, identification. And it's like to me, it's kind of I I see a lot of people that are I can't buy a CD because I got rid of my CD player. And I'm like, did we not learn anything from the first round of people getting rid of their vinyl? Currently, I'm reading the book More Fun in the New World, which is the John Doe L.A. Punk sequel to Under the Big Black Sun. Mm. So the Under the Big Black Sun was John Doe and a bunch of other people that were involved with the L.A. Punk scene from 78 to about 83, writing essays about their experience. This is the next book, which is same but different group of some same but mostly different people writing about their experiences from 82 to 87. And this is the point where John Doe and Dave Alvin and the Screaming Sirens and Los Lobos and Social Distortion and Flesh Eaters are all moving away from punk rock towards more roots and country rock. And it's like, these things are not in opposition. I have for a long time said that country music is punk rock plus maturity. <laughs> that I remember seeing Al Jorgensen of Ministry being interviewed back in 1991 on the Lollapalooza tour, the original Lollapalooza, and him talking about country music and saying, you know, Willie and Waylon and Johnny, these were the first punk rockers. 
And I think he's right. So when people who are like, I'm a punk rocker, I can't be listening to Willie Nelson. I'm like, you absolutely can listen to Willie Nelson. You absolutely can listen to George Jones. You can absolutely discover Johnny Bond or Marty Robbins or whoever it is that speaks to you. You know, the Maddox Brothers and Rose, whatever. If you want to be a punk fan, fine. Enjoy. But if you want to be a music fan, open up your palate, is what I would say. I can't remember what episode it was, but you and I had a conversation. Maybe it wasn't even for a podcast, but we're talking about a book called This Ain't the Summer of Love. And I was really gobsmacked at how much it spoke to, I don't know, whatever period it was, like in the mid-70s that punk and metal were not just uncomfortable with each other, but were actively out and out hostile towards each other. That was just an absolute real eye-opener to me. Well, that continued. I'm going to use the G word here, but the metal versus grunge. I mean, grunge was largely more metallic punk. And there's a lot of people that still cling to the grunge-killed metal narrative, which personally I think is blatantly false. I think thrash-killed pop metal. Because you go from Poison and Warrant to Metallica and Slayer. You don't go from Poison and Warrant to Pearl Jam necessarily. These dichotomies still are out there. And unfortunately, I know a lot of people in my age group that are still like, I want my you know late 80s hair metal back. And I'm like, well, first of all, it's not coming back. Second of all, <laughs> everything evolves. You know, Enjoy what you like. But at the same time, you don't need to blame the culture that's going to shift and evolve. That conflict between those sounds, is, I just look at it and I shake my head. Isn't there the irony? The same people who I think are likely to say, I want those old days to come back. I want new versions of the songs in those old styles are the people who are most likely at a concert to say, play the old hits, play the ones I remember. They don't want new versions or they don't want new songs in that old style. They just want the old songs. But the bottom line is that if they wanted that sound to continue, that they would be supporting the any number of local bands around the world that are playing every single style of music that's ever been from barbershop to jump blues to 60s pop to rockabilly to 80s hair metal to 90s grunge. Every single one of those sounds, there's some local band playing at your, you know, when we were open or playing at your local pub or brewery or city celebration days. They're out there, but they're not hitting the charts and they're not selling stacks of records and they're never going to again. That's just a reality. And once again, I, I, you know, I, I kind of follow the rockabilly scene a little bit. There's a billion great rockabilly bands out there right now. They're not going to be charting the way that Eddie Cochran or Gene Vincent did. They're not even going to chart the way the Story Cats did. Mm. But they play car shows. They play county fairs. They play their local breweries. They have an audience that comes out and people enjoy the music. And that's really what it should be about. Wow. We've gone from Marty Stewart and his fabulous superlatives to talk of punk and car shows and rockabilly, all encompassing. All of those things play into this album. I mean, you can't have car shows without Dick Dale or Link Ray, or we can't talk about punk without talking about that L.A. 60s scene that the birds came out of and how that played into, you know, what would become punk in L.A. a decade later. You know, this is all interrelated. They all influence each other. And that's actually something else I have to thank you for was, you know, you got me to listen to Under the Big Black Sun by X, as you know. You know, a huge fan of Los Lobos, and you know, I still consider them to be my favorite working band on the planet. But you know, I hadn't sort of like paid much attention to anything else from that LA slash record scene. And under the big black sun, it was just like 
I'm embarrassed to say it took me that long, but I'm better late than never. And it's an incredible record. And then sort of finding out, wow, John Doe's done all this other stuff. They all came out of the same scene. They all were going to each other's shows. They all played in each other's bands. It's a tangled web. And if Los Lobos works for you, but the Divine Horsemen don't, that's fine. But they were all intermeshed. If people want to go further than, than X and, you know, the Blasters and Los Lobos, there is the Divine Horsemen. There is Tex and the Horseheads. The way Yoakum played shows with these bands in the, in the early days. You know, the band that became Mazzy Star came out of that scene. It's, I had no you know, idea. Wow. All of these tentacles, you know, the Bengals came out of this scene, the, the Long Riders. That's the whole um, Paisley Underground thing. So, yeah, that makes sense. Just sort of like as a quick digression, did you see that GoGo's documentary from last year? I have not seen the GoGo's documentary yet. I haven't tracked it down yet. It's on the list of things to see. It was part of Melbourne International Film Festival last year. They went online. I thought, right, okay, well, this is one film I definitely have to watch. And it was pretty entertaining. I really enjoyed it. But for me, the biggest revelation was over the closing credits where the band does a completely new song. And I thought, this is one of the best things I've heard them do, you know, which is a wonderful thing because we always sort of think, yeah, well, you know, bands, they have their best days behind them and then they decide to have a reunion and they put out the token new song. And I'm struggling to remember the name now. Is that Club Zero? Is that the song? That's the one. fantastic i absolutely loved it thought wow if they want to continue and do more songs like this i'd be buying a record i I think they've figured out that now that they're older and everything they've been through that they have a better idea of what they want from the music and putting out music they're more likely to you know in this environment not put out a record but put out singles or an ep which i think for a lot of bands like that's probably the way to go thank you so much for contributing to the show and that means over the entire history of love that album not just this particular episode as i said to you when you decided right i've got other things to go do my offer is still open i'm sure we'll still do you know episodes like this or we'll pick an album to mull over for an hour and a half or something like that but you want to come back on a regular or semi-regular basis my door is always open to you good sir well thank you are you doing anything at the moment you're still doing the occasional podcast episode Uh, well i know you're going to be on the projection booth in a week and a half little birdie tells me anything else not really you know i I show up on uh dig me out a couple times a year that's really about it just you know the the last year has been for myself and everyone uh you know a challenging times i have a job i've been working for seven months that's pretty physically and mentally intense at this point so that's kind of draining and just dealing with life hopefully at some point you know I'll, I'll get back to, to doing something else but on the other hand you know sometimes I think I uh, you know I've been doing podcasting and YouTube stuff off and on since 2004 so 15 16 years that's not a bad run yeah if I, I figure that if if I show up on, on odd things here and there every once in a while, that that's fine. I, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. I don't have a billion burning things to talk about. Quite frankly, sometimes I'm, I feel like I'll interject when, when I need to, but I, I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that let's let some other voices out there. And But if I can get people to check out some cool records or an interesting movie or whatever, great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Eric. It's been real and absolute pleasure to have you back 
on the show and we'll find a, another album that we both love to talk about at greater length hopefully in the next 12 months or so most definitely so all the best to we'll be back in a moment to talk about whatever the next thing is right you're listening to love that album 10th anniversary episode Now, on this 10th anniversary edition, I have another person who has been very, very important to my podcasting years, not just on this show, but we've spoken a bit on the projection booth. We've had a lot of social interaction. She's a writer who I admire, both of film and music, and just the most wonderful human being. And no, I'm not pissing in your pocket. I've just gone and explained what that means to her. And <laughs> someone who I absolutely adore, the wonderful Heather Drain. Welcome back to the show, Heather. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. The last time that we spoke on this show, not the last time that we spoke, but the last time we spoke on Love That Album was a year back. And I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to have that conversation. We were talking about Sparks, and they're very much in the news at the moment with their new documentary. But we're speaking about the album Angst in My Pants by Sparks. And the two of us were joined by the late, great Mike McBeardo McPadden. I really, really miss his writings. I miss his podcasts. So tell us a little bit about how much you interacted with him. Did you get to speak with him much outside of the podcasting realm? You know, it's one of those things. Time is so fluid and it feels like as you, as you, you know, as it goes on, it almost becomes syrupy and it's just, it's, it just becomes like this very surreal entity because Mike and I have known each other and I'm going to use partial present tense because Jess Coleman from Killing Joke once said that, you know, he's like, you know, the dead don't like to be talked about in the past tense. Have, that really stuck with me. You can just think of death as just another part of the process of whatever we'll go to next. Mike and I, you know, kind of we knew of each other for a few years and we, you know, got to know each other on social. I ended up contributing a chapter to Teen Movie Hell, his amazing book. Mike had a lot of superpowers and one of them was... He is what I call a lightning rod personality. And what I mean by that is there's certain people in the creative spheres that will attract just all kinds of cool artists. Like David Boy, like in the musical sphere, I would say David Boy was one of them. Or, you know, Ross Williams from Christian Death. In the film writing sphere, Mike McFadden most definitely. And and Mike was just always, always thinking of stuff. Mike would come up with ideas for more books that never got out there than most writers will ever finish. Like he was always just coming up with stuff. It's heartbreaking, but we were going to start a podcast together and we were going to start it last December and then have the main run of it be in 2021. Obviously that didn't quite happen, but we were going to do Mondo Midnight Movies and he even created like an Instagram account for it. And the whole take was me and him were just like, you know, let's do something about the movies that never quite made it to like the Rocky Horror level of cult fandom. You know, it's like as much as we love a lot of those big titles like Pink Flamingos and Rocky and El Topo, they're not lacking for love, and rightfully so. But so me and him wanted to kind of go for deeper cuts 
kind of the cool thing, and this isn't, I still need to get this posted and share it with the world, but um, Ben Reiser, uh, who's a lovely, lovely person, he's yes, good yes. friends with Mike, we all love Ben. Anybody that knows Ben is like, you know, we're all like, oh my God, we love Ben. <laughs> he's such a sweetheart. He reached out to me because Mike, we had gotten as far in the process of Mike looping Ben because Ben was going to be like our editor, an audio guru, and Mike interviewed Alex Cox because our first episode was our first main episode was going to be straight to hell, which is a massive favorite of mine and Mike's both. We love the movie and it's unjustly maligned. You get to this day, still find some really scathing critiques of straight to hell. And it's unfortunate because it's such a fun movie. The entire Pogues are in this movie and it's like a spaghetti Western and you got Joe Strummer. You got Fox Harris, who was in Repo Man and, and Sadie and Steven Sadie and Sato Calgary. You know, it's like the cast is crazy. It's so good. Mike, because he's magical and was more connected than the Pope, <laughs> got to do this amazing audio interview with uh, Alex Cox. And Ben, because Ben's the audio guy, Ben still has the audio. And Ben reached out to me and he's like, how do you feel if we do, you know, like, even if we only do this one episode, let's do this episode and, and have it be like a tribute to Mike, you know, because that's the thing we put in this work for it. Anytime I've lost anybody that is an artist and I mean, sadly, I've, I've lost a few. The thing that always haunts me the most is the shit that doesn't get done. You know, the projects they were wanting to do. And because I think as anybody's creative, we all want to be able, when it's our time to inevitably cut out, we want to feel good about our body work. You know, like, did we do everything we wanted to do? I was like, Ben, that's a fabulous idea. And so me, him, and Bill Ackerman, uh, and I know you know Bill, and you've worked with Bill, and of course, Bill, much like Ben Reiser, you know, is like one of the nicest human beings on the planet, and is also my unofficial manager. So (laughs) for for any, yeah, Bill's, he's great. So we have recorded this episode and it's edited. I just need to find a place to host it and get it out there to the world. That's kind of a plug, I guess also, but Mike's interview, honestly, for that alone, it's a fantastic episode. I think it turned out great as a whole. Bill's awesome. And we got to, you know, really talk up straight to hell, which was always fun. It still doesn't seem real to me that he's gone. I tend to process death like that, you know, like there's always a part it just doesn't you know i think we all we all obviously miss him but you know like what you and i are doing right here we are honoring him like that's the thing mike made so much great work he put out so much great work and especially for being so young dude oh my god mike would get more done in a year than most people would get done in a lifetime like dude was so prolific and you and i doing this this is beautiful like you know my us getting work out there getting that love out there getting that art out there that's what it's about every time we do that it's not just sending love to those that are here but it's sending love to all of those that we love who've moved on to whatever the next thing may or may not be this sort of goes along something that we were talking about before we started recording heather in that it seems to me that mike was the sort of person who if you had told him that you hadn't heard a particular record that other people would mock you for he'd be the sort of person who'd say right take my hand let me pull you up here let me share this with you he's the sort of guy who would never mock you for not knowing something it's just do you want to know about it right let me show it to you then you can become a fan just as much as i am he was that sort of creative that i was just drawn to and when there was the outpouring of grief when it became you know widely known in the community that he'd passed 
on the one hand, I was sort of thinking, wow, there's so many people who are grieving. And on the other hand, it made complete sense because he attracted people, not just with his vision, but his willing to share what he knew with other people and, and not mock them for not knowing, but saying, hey, come on board. This is really great. I'm forever grateful that you know, I had however brief a time in his presence and uh, being able to record a couple of shows and shoot the shit a little bit. And I highly, anybody listening to this episode, if you haven't listened to the episode, please go back and listen to it. it. It's something I'm really proud of. I'm so glad I got to be a part of it. And thank you for doing that. And I mean, for anything, Mike singing the theme song to Electra Blue. Oh, that's right. Not, and everybody listening, <laughs> not the Ice House song. Now the time has come to see the show, the show, the show, the show. The girls, the cars, the dreams, dreams. electronic sense. First of all, I guess should we just mention, I was given two albums, like everybody else, to pick that have come out in the last 10 years to celebrate this amazing show. 10 years! Holy cow! How incredible is it that you have been doing this kick-ass show for 10 years? I need another hobby. No, <laughs> I don't think it's a hobby now. It's a way of life, yes. It is. That's right. This isn't a uniform. It's a way of life. But... Uh, <laughs> My brain flooded at first because there's been so many great albums that have come out in the last 10 years. That's why I'm always mystified when people say, oh, there's no good music. I'm like, well, you're not listening. And But then to the two that I settled on, two very different bands because that's how I roll. The first one was Shriek Bat with Why Anything, Why This? There comes a day you see what we are Closer in nature to the tapeworm and the jaguar And we're the feast of germs, lest we forget Hey, are we having fun yet? Are we having fun yet? Bring us a louder light Now, what year did that come out? So I should have this fact at my fingertips, this factoid. What year was no, that? No, 2018. 2018, right. Street Bag is probably best known for their 80s work, in particular Nemesis. So for all of my old school goths out there, you know what I'm talking about. It's so good. I love Nemesis. They were kind of always more on the cult edge. Like they had some songs like on some soundtracks back then. And, and the 80s stuff is great. But when I discovered the newer stuff, they've been doing like they've been self-releasing their albums for the past uh, several years now. And oh, I was just floored. I'm like, oh, my God, they're doing their best stuff. And I love seeing artists that do that. Gary Newman's another one where it's like put classic era is great. But the newer stuff's like that's the stuff that's going to kick your ass and all of the best ways. And the lineup is the core lineup. It's the three guys that started that band. Now, I remember back in the day I had heard line. Up. Oh, that's such a great song. Yes. Which I, I got to confess, back then, I, I guess that sort of production work maybe sounded a little bit like the new romantic era. I'm not sure whether that qualifies, but it sounded like that to me at the time. And it didn't do anything for me at the time. But when you said to me, right, this is one of the albums I want to cover, I thought, okay, well, let's have a listen to this. Loved it. And then freaked out when I found out that there was a bona fide musical hero of mine in this band, Barry Andrews. He uh, yes. of the Spike. Uh, Keyboard sound of XTC. Yes, Barry 
Andrews is the man. I love him so much. I think he also might be a vampire because <laughs> dude is barely aged. You watch Nemesis and then watch the videos from this album. Like, and they did two music videos for it. One for After the Rain and the other one for 31. Both great videos and great songs. And The Rain. I don't always say After the Rain. And it's 37. I, okay. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> It's been it's been a long week. But yeah, I mean, God, he looks amazing. I just, I love these guys so much. This album, it, it's funny because I actually read one write-up where the guy, like, there are certain songs that reminded him of Tom Waite. I can sort of see that. And this album, I mean, I highly recommend anybody checking out the last several albums because they're all fully good. This was the gateway one for me and to get into the, the newer era, though, so that's why I picked it. It's one of those works. You know, like, some albums work on a track-by-track basis. Other albums, to me, kind of work is almost like it washes over you like you're entering into like a landscape this is like for me a landscape album i mean obviously mm. each song's a little different going back and li- re-listening to it this week i took a few notes and this is totally just some stream of consciousness i keep writing words like mystery and shadowy there's certain times you almost feel like it's the narrative of say like a seraphim that's sad-eyed and smoking a cigarette and just gazing upon this madness that is life and when the many things I love about Shreveck is the lyrics. They always have such evocative lyrics. Like 37, which is the final track, almost has this like apocalyptic feel. 37 fishes in the snot green sea. 37 sugars in the old man's tea. All the doves are here and cooing love's sweet song. Keep it all on lockdown till the doves have gone. Then you'll have a song like Useless Treasure, which is, to me, it almost made me think of Leonard Cohen, which is never a bad thing. Let the future not ignore That under dress she swore That under her dress she wore Only my scent Love Leonard Cohen. There were three songs which I made notes about, more to sort of point out the diversity, because like when the album starts, there's a song called Shovelheads, and I thought, okay, this is the sort of album that I'm going to be hearing for the next 45 minutes or whatever. So I said, hey, Mr. Cronenberg, show me And then it just really changes by track three or four, or whatever. It's going in a different direction and doesn't even sound like the same band. So we get songs like Such Are The Joys. And the one that, I, that really struck me, I loved, was called The Painter Paints. The painter paints and the writer writes. What will you do? What will you do? The painter paints and the writer writes. What will you do? Yes. Just a gorgeous piece of poetry. I think the chorus in there is uh, the painter paints, the writer writes, what are you doing tonight? 
Yeah. And oh, it's so good. What a great lyric. Sort of thinking, well, you know, people are out there being creative. Are you just sitting there doing nothing with your life? Just get out and do something. I mean, maybe I'm taking it down to be too simplistic, but that's what I read into it. And what a great turn of phrase. What a great lyric. So, yeah, I, I look forward to listening to this more and just sort of trying to work out what it is the hell that they're actually talking about. So what are your other favorite cuts? Oh, gosh. Well, and the rain. It has this... this bigness about it all of it yeah shovelheads you know church of the louder light i don't know I, this is an album where i don't feel like there's any filler i feel like everything is equally strong sometimes for different reasons it's just a fine album and i love the fact that this band it's not like they're getting a ton of money for doing this especially self-releasing it mm. but it's kind of the benefit of the internet age and, and the fact that so many i mean like the record industry is dinosaurs at this point and so now we have an area where musicians can be in control and not be so privy to the whims of things like test groups or oh well we gotta aim this towards the demographic and i don't hear any hits on this album you know <laughs> you know bands like this can now be like yeah fuck off we're in charge we're making the art we want to make they're really in touch with their fans they're really engaged on their social you know they do a lot of crowdfunding and they're just they're great they i mean on top of just being brilliant artists every interview i see with all three of them they all seem like really nice guys despite what burning sensations once said plenty of people call pablo picasso an asshole okay <laughs> a lot of great artists are assholes but shriek back just really seem like good guys and human history has always been riddled with chaos and plagues and pain and people being in charge that should not be in charge of a plant much less a government or a country but bands like this artists like that to me art is always the best coping mechanism and Shriekback, it's like their music with so many other songs are able to kind of comment on the darkness of it while pointing out the light. It's just beautiful. And they do it in a way that's so smart and just so creative. And it, it, right, I mean, you nailed it. It's great poetry and it's not pretentious. It's just from the heart. COVID aside, were they active as a live band in the uh, 2010s? I don't think they've been able to do the newer material as part of the live acts yet, but maybe that'll change as things kind of open up. Hopefully let's all knock on some wood because of all the variants and everything with COVID. But yeah, I mean, they've been, I know they've done some live stuff and they're definitely very active making music videos. I know they're currently working on a new album right now, so I can't wait to hear it. I'm very excited. Just, man, like, treat back. I love finding artists that not only inspire you creatively, but you're like, yeah, these are guys being consistently creative and doing what they want to do and just being just so bold with it. It's a great life lesson.
All right. What's your next recommendation? Oh, okay. Holy shit. This is where I go from being passionate to like, I'm dancing on the ceiling. (laughs) I'm losing my mind. I'm taking over governments. I'm moving mountains. I'm doing it all. Because we are talking about the Flesh Tones 2020 release, Face of the Screaming Werewolf. Now, I was embarrassed to say, when you went and told me this was one of the albums that you were going to talk about, and I thought, hang on, oh yeah, didn't Eric talk about the flesh tones? And I went back through the archives and I thought, no, I could have sworn he did. I did a search and then I realized, oh, Eric talked about the flesh eaters. Which is not an altogether different sort of band in their way. I mean, I love the album A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die, which Eric introduced me to. The Flesh Eaters are fantastic. To me, they're very different, but equally great. Oddly enough, they're on the same current record label that the Flesh Tones are. They're both on Yep Rock Records. Right. Some great act on Yep Rock. One of my favorite acts is Los... Oh, Lost Straight Jackets. Lost Straight Jackets. Yeah. Yeah. Wrestling masks and surf music. What a great combination. They put out a Halloween album called Mondo Zombie Boogaloo, I believe is the title. And on that, it's a collaboration between Lost Straight Jackets, The Flesh Tones, and Southern Culture on the Skids. Oh, um, what? Spoiler alert, it fucking rocks. <laughs> no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> Right? Oh my god. The Flesh Tones. This is a band I've always loved. I was a very late bloomer to them because I didn't really get to hear or see anything by them till weirdly enough, the 90s because a local video store in the town I grew up in had a VHS tape of IRS Records, The Beast of IRS Volume 1, which they never did Volume 2. But I've always been into like music video, especially history, and that tape had bands that I knew about that I was a big fan of, like The Cramp you know, is on the tape and Let's Active, which are really cool underrated Southern band from Southern Carolina or South Carolina, <laughs> which is in the stamp. Anyways, uh, and then there's those flesh tones. And I was like, okay, this band's super cool. Then I'd see them pop up in the concert film Urban Music War. And I'm like, okay, these guys are awesome. I'd forgotten that they were in that. I only watched that about two years ago for the first time and forgotten that they were part of that. Well, there's like 20 bands. So it's, you know, there's a lot to digest with that one. But I would, so I was like, man, I love these guys. And then it's one of those things where almost kind of like a shriek back. I didn't realize, you know, I was a little bit out of loop. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh man, these guys are still making music. Let me check this out. It's like love, you know? It's like when you just have that moment of just the divine touch of great music. And I have just been digging and delving into their newer back catalog. And oh my God, it is a rewarding experience. I want to be a roadie for these guys now. (laughs) I will totally, they need me to carry their orange amps. I'm on it. They need me to fix them a cocktail. Get me the Stuart, the little stirs and the little cherries and all that. I will do it. I love the flesh tones. I'm going to say this now. They are now my number one favorite rock band. I don't make that statement lightly. You don't. No, these guys are the real deal. Find a couple of cherry 
people out there who haven't heard the flesh tones yet give it a description the flesh tones they describe their music as super rock and i think that's a fabulous term because it is super rock some songs kind of have like almost like a cool garage rock kind of dirty sounding like if you like bands like the thugs you'll like it but some are a little more swinging a little more like oh you like paul Revere and the raiders or something like that but the thing is like that's so cool about them is that none of it sounds retro in a facsimile kind of way like all of their music sounds fresh they have a sense of humor but they can do something really heartfelt like on this album there's a really beautiful cover of the rolling stone child of the moon the wind blows rain into my such a beautiful cover and it's a beautiful song yeah these guys just like everything they give to you is a fucking gift i'm so over the moon about the flesh tones if you couldn't tell and if anybody from the band listens to this i will be your roadie don't restrain yourself heather tell us what you really think (laughs) i think it's groovy i listened to this album i agree 100 with what you just said that they're not a pastiche type of 60s band but you can tell that they've listened to the nuggets collection hundreds and hundreds of times i mean i listen to this and i can think oh that sounds like the seeds or or the sonics that's the beauty of a lot of those garage bands from that era is that if you do them today it often doesn't sound like it's a pastiche of the era it's not like say a band that's trying to sound like the beatles or something like that which really is far from a sin for me but that's not what these guys are about it can still sound contemporary that's a beauty of a lot of that old garage material when you and i spoke about the kink some time ago and I made mention of one of the songs from Lola versus the Money Go Round album that it sounded to me like a Hoodoo Guru song and a good chunk of these songs on Face of the Screaming Werewolf sounded to me like I was listening to a great new Hoodoo Gurus album. It had that freshness. That, and, and these are just damn good songs because I think a lot of bands that tend to last for a long time, they live off the style, they live off the sound, but don't necessarily come up with great compositions to work with that style. But on the basis of listening to this album, every one of these songs. I've only got the chance to listen to it a, a couple of times, but these are good, memorable songs. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Well, and it's funny you mentioned it because, you know, a band that's a big fan of the Flesh Tones is the Hoodoo Gurus. Uh, no, there you go. No surprise. For starters, you have an album that is titled off of a Jerry Warren movie from the 60s. And Jerry Warren, if you're not familiar, was an American producer who uh, would take a lot of movies from Mexico and usually kind of re-edit them and remarket them for American audiences. And with Face the Screaming Werewolf, he cobbled together two different movies. Apparently, I haven't seen it, but apparently it makes very little sense. Because like one of the films he did, like he took it from was a comedy, but he cut out all the comedy from it. <laughs> and then mixed in. Like, I mean, he would do things like that. You know, and it's such a great fun track. And uh, and then it's just like you have know, like Alex Trebek, which is such a great, beautiful kind of tribute to the late great Alex Trebek, who was the host of Jeopardy. 7 p.m. What to do? 
the American edition of Jeopardy over here. I mean, we had, like, when I was a kid, there was an Australian edition, obviously, but the first I knew of anything of this guy's name was seeing on Facebook, was it late last year when Alex passed away and there were so many people in our communities who were posting, oh, I'm so sad to see that he's died. You know, he was a big part of my television-watching teenage years through to today. And was it 37 years he hosted Jeopardy? Oh, something like that. I grew up watching Alex Trebek, like, it's just always part of the TV landscape over here. One song I definitely have to mention is Manpower Debut. My long pajama, baby. It's got some hilarious lyrics. I mean, it rhymes. Uh, I'm reading Byron Shelley and Pizza. They put extra cheese on my slice of pizza. <laughs> and then it cuts to, I got toxic masculinity. Like, <laughs> I'm like, never has toxic masculinity ever sounded more just fun and kick ass than when Peter Zaremba's singing it. And there's some great instrumentals. I love, love, love a good rock and roll instrumental. And like you have Swinging Planet X, which is just like a fun, hip shaking number. I made note of that. Any song that's got that style of harmonica playing and a bow diddly beat is all right by me. This is Spaceman approaching Planet X. It is swinging. I'm not sure whether you were going to bring this one up, Heather, but a song that I thought, whoa, this has got a lot to say. And I wouldn't be surprised if the deaths at that Who concert, I think in 1979, uh, was something behind it, spilling blood at the rock and roll show. talking about that and he was actually like you know one of the first jobs i guess he had he worked at a concert hall one of the guys he worked with got stabbed death oh my lord yeah and it's just like you know what the you know basically just like what the hell people like we're all here to have a good time like people should not be getting stabbed you don't want to have a repeat of altamont every time you go to a concert no goodness no no like the final track somerset morning has this like sort of almost rustic pastoral kind of beauty to it it's such a lovely lovely note to end this amazing album
really just going track by track on this one. I love it so much. A lot of the songs are Peter, but then you have Keith String, who's the guitarist, and Keith has this like loud, booming, amazing voice. My husband Chuck actually compared it to Naughty Holder from uh, Slade. Oh wow! Uh, okay. Which who doesn't? Come on, Slade's amazing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I love Slade. And then you have like Ken Fox, the bassist on a uh, song, which Ken Fox is also. Um, he did a side project. Let me make it a side about the side here called Ken Fox and Knock Yourself Out. And he does a cover of the Pink Fairies Do It, and it smokes. It's so good. It's just this band. It's like every person in this band is an ace in the deck. So I actually haven't ordered myself a copy of this album yet, but I'm definitely planning to do. But you'll be impressed that I have gone and ordered. I had to get it off eBay because it's out of print. But I ordered a copy of an anthology, an Australian anthology uh, from a company called oh. Raven Records, run by local rock music guru, Glenn A. Baker. They put together all the um, the choice cuts from the IRS years. It's called Super Rock Time and has, I think, just about everything off Roman gods, which I listened to as well as this one and just was knocked out but oh, it's yeah. got a, a bunch of stuff from 1980 to 1985 and thought wow you know this is a band that's just held the flame up for rock and roll all these years oh right on definitely check out some any live footage of them uh, on youtube in fact there's one of them doing uh, a version of a song they have uh, that it's back it's back to the 80s i don't know what 80s it's off the irs one of the irs albums called the drag Okay. And there's a version from a festival that they performed at in Australia oh. called the Shindig, the Shindig Music Festival. And this this version of the drag, well, every version of the drag is amazing. But this one, it's total gold. There's not a bad Flesh Tones album. They're all great. I do recommend, if you really love this one, though, the one they did, was it 2002? They did a, a one called Do You Swing? And that one pairs up very nicely with Face of the Screaming Werewolf. Thank you so much for those recommendations. Thank you so much for being a part of the Love That Album family, Heather. Before we check out any new articles coming up at Diabolique magazine that the listeners should be aware of. One just went up today. I reviewed a film that came out last year called A Dim Valley, which I'll just to give a people a teaser. Uh, the film delves into the sensual world of botany and so much more. Is it like The Secret Life of Plants? I never watched that. <laughs> Of course, you can always keep up with me over at my uh, my own website, which is mondoheather.com. Fantastic. All right. Well, we'll be back in a moment and I'll sort of work out what's happening next on the show. I'm feeling a little bit sort of disorganized here, but there you go. 10th anniversary. I'm allowed to be disorganized. Once again, thank you so much, Heather. It's been really wonderful. Awesome. Thank you so much and happy anniversary. Yay. We'll be back in a moment. And I hope you really enjoyed that. I know I certainly did, speaking to all those wonderful people. Thanks so much to Jeff Jenkins, Ian McFarlane, Eric Peterson, and Heather Drain for their time, their input, their thoughtfulness, 
those wonderful suggestions. I hope that you had a pencil and paper and were taking notes there as to albums that you should be investigating. All right, so episode 148, which should be out in a week or two, will be featuring three more guests who are going to be talking about albums released over the last 10 years that they wanted to recommend. The first will be Shane Pacey of the Bondi Cigars, the only musician that we have on this two-parter. And I don't know, there's something a little bit wrong with that, only having one musician to be talking about music on a program devoted to music, but there you have it. Mr. Billy Pinnell, who was the host of the album show on Eon FM slash Triple M FM throughout the 80s into the early 90s and has been contributing to radio shows over the last 30-odd years or so. And it's a privilege to have Bill on this program. I don't think that I would be doing anything in the radio or podcasting space if I hadn't heard Bill when I first did as a teenager. I was a big fan of his, as was a lot of Melburnians. And the final guest will be Mr. Brian Nankervis, he of Rockwiz fame, he of Let the Blood Run Free fame, all sorts of things. And it's an absolute treat to talk to Brian as well. So all these marvellous people, hope that you can tune into that one and make sure that you can take a few more notes about albums that you should catch up with. All right, so until next month, look after each other, be nice to each other, listen to some more wonderful music. If, As I said at the beginning of the show, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, please let other people know that the show exists and I would be extremely grateful. Until next time, be well. Cheers. Cheers.